Hello, lifers. This is Heather Drew, and this is the Life in the Whirlwind podcast. Today, this beautiful November day in Philadelphia, uh, today is episode 50, and this episode is called Near Life Experiences. So uh, some of you might be familiar with this term, near-death experiences. And what we tend to, I think, I used to think that I knew what this meant, but um, we're not going to get into this tremendously, but just for the sake of context, uh, there are these mm, experiences called near-death experiences, and they're very fascinating They are, according to many, scientifically proven. I'm laughing because there are many who are like, that's not true. Um, And some of you are listening to this, and that's fine. You may be skeptical. That is okay. That's allowed. But um, anyway, all that to say, I I find it kind of fascinating. Uh, I don't believe everything I hear, but I find everything pretty much fascinating. So I was recently at... A in October, I was at a counseling conference, and on the agenda, first of all, I went to the conference most mostly. I wouldn't say solely because of, but mostly because uh, Dr. Dan Siegel was on the bill, as it were, and. I was not going to miss that opportunity. Dan Siegel is one of my cherished heroes in life. And I decided I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to this conference no matter what it takes. So I did. And it was lovely. It was wonderful. I heard him speak three times. And uh, one of his breakout sessions he did with a different uh, professional. And they did a... It was this breakout session on the neurobiology of near-death experiences. And I promise this is going somewhere. Uh, all that, all this story built up to, to lead you to this place where uh, Dan Siegel, during this breakout session, he's taught, you know, this other guy is basically giving all of the proof for near-death experiences. He's telling stories about it. He's talking about research on it. And he's basically making the case for near-death experiences while Dan Siegel is just kind of standing there listening and taking some notes here and there. You know, he's, he's a gentle, wonderful, brilliant person. And it's his turn to talk. And he gets up and he says, you know, as I'm listening to this, I can't help but think that, you know, yes, there are near-death experiences. Those That's a given. Um, but what we are less aware of, perhaps, is near-life experiences. Oh, it was so good. Uh, my friend that I was sitting next to, I, like, grabbed her leg. <laughs> I was just so blown away by that statement. And it is long overdue. It's been a month now, and I would really like to uh, actually... Yeah, it's been about a month now, maybe two months even, um, since this happened. So I thought it was time to do an episode on this. It's time. Near-life experiences. Uh, Here's an example of what I'm going to talk about this today, but one of these interesting stories that kind of um, added to my desire to do an episode on this is my friend Kelly and I take walks every once in a while on Fridays pretty regularly. 
and we were taking a walk one Friday and we were taking a walk in a local graveyard. It's this beautiful, historic, massive Catholic graveyard. It's huge. And we were just walking around and, you know, you see these mausoleums and you look inside and you see these, you know, these beautiful marble and iron, decorated iron pieces, you know, in, in like handles for the, you know, the doors and the window. It's just like so beautiful. And I'm standing there and I'm looking at this. Oh, and I was looking in the back and I see this stained glass. I may have already mentioned this. I forget. But I see this, you know, when you look into the window of these things, they're closed. You can't go inside. Um, there are people in, you know, their resting place inside these pla- inside these buildings, these little tiny buildings. And I'm looking inside and I see these beautiful stained glass windows. And I'm thinking to myself, why do people wait until they're dead to get these beautiful things? <laughs> like, what did their house look like? Was it this nice? Because this is really like the pretty much the nicest place I can think of. I, I you know, I, I could see myself living in this kind, these kinds of conditions. Um, so I know that there's a lot of obvious stuff around death that makes that the case. You know, how we honor the dead is really important. And um, certain beliefs about ways of burying people and such, you know, I, I get that. But it does raise this really interesting question of why don't we treat our life like that? Why don't we uh, surround ourselves with these incredibly beautiful things as much as possible while we are alive? Uh, so my friend Kelly and I decided we will someday in our <laughs> ripe age probably start a company where we sell stained glass like mausoleum windows to people who are alive <laughs> and they can enjoy them while they're alive uh, coming to a store near you. Anyway, um, so that's kind of where we're going today. I want to talk about, you know, we have these near life experiences and similar to near death experiences, near death experiences sort of awaken something in you that was not awake before. And this is way deeper than what it sounds like. So I'm not going to go into it, but, um, I'm sure some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you're into this stuff, this kind of stuff, and you've read a lot about it. But near life experiences, I think, have the same kind of impact where when we have these tastes of life, like real life, not just, you know, survival, um, flourishing, I might say, <laughs> these moments of flourishing, when we have these moments, we taste something far bigger and far more eternal and vast. Um, I'm going to tell you about another, I'm going to tell you about an experience that I just had this week that I would call a near life experience. Uh, I'll come back to it actually in a few points. Okay. Cause I've told you two stories. So now I'm going to tell you some facts and then I'll come back to the story. It's, it's good stuff. So when do these near life experiences tend to occur? I think they tend to occur when we live into instead of out of our fearful selves. When we include 
our fearful selves, and we decide to live anyway. Okay, I'm going to give you some examples. So here's some qualities of that. So they all kind of build on each other. One is we take risks. We expand our capacity through risk-taking. And I don't mean recklessness. I don't mean foolishness. I mean you feel a fear and your body's responding like this is not safe. And you say, you know what? It's okay. It's okay. Like something taught me that this was scary and maybe it's just not so scary after all. And, um, taking a risk is really important. That can be a physical risk. It can be a relational risk. I would say more often than not, we find life in relational risk, emotional risk, because we sort of allow ourselves to be known. And that brings us into a greater experience and capacity for life and understanding. So that's one thing. And the second thing is another quality of a near life experience is we don't let tensions stop us. So near life experiences are simple and difficult, right? It's looking at the things of life that are so simple and yet they're difficult to pay attention to. We've almost been trained to not pay attention to them. Or um, there's a tension in the sense of, you know, we're in traffic, but we are looking through the sunroof because it's, what am I going to do by fretting, you know, about the traffic? Uh, I'm going to instead look through my sunroof and see what I see above me and watch the trees sway in the breeze and remember that there's something much bigger than traffic going on around me if I'm paying attention. Uh, Another quality is when these tend to occur is when we let go of the felt need to decide how it's going to go, right? It's this, (coughs) excuse me, it's this, you know, I feel like I need to control this situation. I feel like I need to anticipate all the possible problems and plan for them. Um, I need to decide if it's a good or a bad decision before I make the decision or before I leap. Um, I know of, of someone, a friend who was talking recently about how, you know, looking is stressful and leaping suddenly the stress goes away. So, you know, it's kind of like look before you leap type of thing. Um, and then I saw this card at a store that said leap and the net will appear, Um, So sometimes it's just a matter of this letting go of the felt need to decide how it's going to go and know what's going to happen. Uh, When we don't allow, this this is a fourth thing, when we don't allow our automatic reactions and impulses to be what moves us, life tends to be what moves us. This life experience is flourishing. Um, when we are not acting out of impulse, but we are sort of paying great attention, when we are uh, aware and alert and attuned to the things around us, it makes a very big difference. That's when we tend to experience near life experiences or life experiences. Um, I think here's something that's interesting. 
If we believe that every moment is ripe with divinity and rich has this possibility for sort of like rich nourishment for our whole selves, we might actually stop avoiding what scares us. Um, I just think of all the times in college where I, I don't know why college comes to mind in particular. I think I was more of a risk taker in college than other parts of my life, probably definitely before that. And I just remember thinking like, oh, I would never go on this trip or I would never do this for the weekend. And I would do it. And it was just like so life-giving. It's the thing that I remember the most about my twenties, probably my like late teens and early twenties. So it's, again, it's not recklessness, of course. It's a sort of calculated, cautious risk-taking. Um, one, two, three, four. Here's a fifth quality <laughs> that I will tell you. Um, when we are in a state where we realize that we actually don't have anything to lose, we have a near-life experience. I always say that, I often say this, that I make my best decisions when I've got nothing to lose. I wish I realized more often how often that is true. How often it is true that I, what I think I could lose, either it doesn't really matter if I lose it or I can't lose it. The things that really matter can't be lost. So I think that that's, you know, there are these moments of clarity that I've had in my life where... I've had bolder moments and I've seen and felt life in a way that I've never felt before. And I felt very awake. And it was because I realized I didn't really have anything to lose or it didn't matter if I lost what I thought was essential, like these things that didn't really matter, like someone's good opinion of me. Really, what does that tell me? What does that really tell me if someone likes me or doesn't like me? <clears throat> All that really tells me excuse me, is that that person likes me or doesn't like me. That's all it really tells me. Uh, it doesn't really tell me the truth necessarily. Uh, so that's the fifth thing. One, two, three, four, five. I didn't number these. They're letters instead. Um, sixth thing. Here's the last thing that I would say, the last quality that I was considering today <clears throat> about this near-life experience business is, of course... You have a near, you're more likely to have a near life experience when you, the whole self is present right here, right now. <clears throat> so what does that mean? It means please involve your body in your life. We have so often, I'm preparing to teach on uh, theology of the body tomorrow afternoon and um, I've just been thinking so much about like the physical body and how forgetful we are of the physical body at times and how Descartes has sort of usurped our ability to, or, you know, persuaded us to ignore the body. And I want to just bring us back to this again. I know that I repeat this over and over, but perhaps it takes a lot of repetition to concretize, concretize these realities for us, for ourselves. And so, you know, what does it mean to involve your body in your life? I always tend to imagine that, um, the divine moment is right now. And the way into this present divine moment is the breath. It's 
the link to the now. It's the link to both this present moment, which potentially sort of has this almost timelessness to it at the same time. You know, when you're watching, like right now I'm looking out my window and I'm watching these clouds pass by that are like bathed in sunshine. They're so beautiful. And this tree in my back yard, it's not my backyard, it's my neighbor's backyard. When I look out this window, this tree is massive. It is one of the most beautiful trees I've ever seen. It is, I'm so grateful to have it in my backyard behind my house. Um, <clears throat> but when I look at it, it's almost like time doesn't exist because I'm using my body. I'm like taking my senses to up this tree and, and experiencing everything that this tree has to offer me and whatever God has to offer me through this tree. So, uh, it's, it's powerful stuff. Um, if we use our body, it brings us into places that are meant for us to experience things that are meant to be experienced. So those are some of the qualities. Okay. What prevents us from having near life experiences? Maybe more importantly, um, I think anxiety is a big one. So I think what we do is we, uh, we hold on to a lot of things, believing it will improve our experience of life. And, you know, some of these things I've already mentioned, like planning ahead or, you know, listening to our anxieties, trying to anticipate everything that could happen and planning for it and making a solution and blah, 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 all this stuff. But I think actually what we do when we hold on to those kinds of things, thinking it will improve our life experience it actually keeps us small. I think it actually keeps our lives small. And so that's us living out of fear, not into our fears. So fear is at the steering wheel in these capacities. Like when we're holding on to these things so tightly and we're striving to make things a certain way or control them. And that's just not life. It's just small. Uh, it's natural. It happens a lot. It's easy. It's, it comes extremely easily. And I think it makes us small. So here, here are the things that I would recommend to try. Uh, I've been, I looked through, I flipped through this book called Reimagining the Ignatian Examine. And the Examine Prayer, the Prayer of Examine, A-E-X-A-M-E-N, E-X-A-M-E-N. It's like exam E-N. Uh, it's this prayer that is believed to be, you know, St. Ignatius of Loyola, written by St. Ignatius. And uh, it's this sort of, you know, it's these different pieces and it looks at the past and the present and the future. And it's very focused on opening our hands and releasing outcomes and practicing gratitude and presence. I highly recommend using this prayer in your daily life. And as I was flipping through this book, Reimagining the Ignatian Examine, uh, by Mark Thibodeau, I think it's, I think it's pronounced Thibodeau, uh, T-H-I-B-O-D-E-A-U-X, uh, Father Mark Thibodeau, he talks about one of these being um, 
he calls this the saving face examine prayer. And here's, it's an acronym, of course, because we love acronyms. Uh, So what FACE stands for is this. We, you know, what prevents us from having near-life experiences or life experiences are these four things spelled out with the acronym FACE. My fears prevent me. My attachments prevent me. And my, my control, feeling like I need it to be okay, prevents me. And my entitlement prevents me from living my life in flourishing. So as I was reading this, I was thinking about how to use this in a practice. And I think it would be really, really effective if this is the invitation for you this week. What if you, to have a near-life experience, you journaled on a regular basis for a set period of time Uh, this face prayer of examine. Um, You hold these things with open hands. You write down what are your fears? What are your attachments? What are the things you're trying to control? And what are the things you consider yourself entitled to? And when you write these down, I think, first of all, by the way, the reason I say write them down is because that involves your body. There's something about telling a story with your body. Maybe it's writing it down. Maybe you're the kind of person who I know actually many of you, a couple of you at least who have emailed me have said that you um, use your body in prayer. So maybe you lie on the floor and sort of use your body to, you know, utilize movement during this prayer as you go through these four things. What are your fears? What are your attachments? What are you trying to control? And what do you feel entitled to? And when you do this, I would do this for a set period of time uh, on a regular basis. So maybe it's once a day at the same time every day. Maybe it's once a week at the same time every week for a month or two. But it's interesting to see over time, as I've practiced this myself, it's interesting to see what has shifted. Uh, What I fear, what I am attached to, what I try to control... And what I feel entitled to completely change over the course of this prayer practice. Because what I'm doing is I'm acknowledging these things. I am naming them. By naming them, I'm claiming them. And then I'm reclaiming a commitment to let go of them. This is a transformative practice. I... This is the definition of simple and difficult because to bring these things to the surface, to your own attention is risky business, but then also to hold yourself accountable to them between you and God and hold them open with open hands. That is a whole other kind of riskiness. It's a beautiful risk because it will transform you. It will take your life and add salt and color and flavor and all kinds of things to it that you never could have anticipated or expected. And that's the thing. It's like when we let go of what we want life to be, what we think we want life to be, then we actually find the life that's meant for us. That's such a cliche, but cliches are cliches because they're true. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. 
So honor, choose to honor the benefit of this regular practice that will lead you to life experience, to flourishing. I can pretty much guarantee it. And maybe you even commemorate it. Like, like I mentioned, you know, you, maybe you make a stained glass window of the things that you have released or some symbol that shows, reminds you that you have released this and you put it in your window and you look at it now in your life. Okay, here is your blessing, my dear friends. This is from our dear friend Henry Nowen, and this is from The Inner Voice of Love. This is in reference to living into your fears, not out of your fearful self. Are you surviving without really living? Be patient. When you feel lonely, stay with your loneliness. Avoid the temptation to let your fearful self run away. Let it teach you its wisdom. Let it tell you that you can live instead of just surviving. Gradually, you will become one, unfragmented. And you will find that God is living in your heart and offering you all that you need. So my friends, may you practice this this week. And may you live beyond survival and into flourishing. Thank you for showing up. As always, take great care. And I'll see you next week. Thank you.